somewhere in space. This may all be happening right now. A future that would transcend time. Introducing Apple II. The story of a boy, a girl, and a universe. Showing us the rocky field where it had landed. Enterprise, we now recommend 50% speed break. Somewhere in space. The excitement of a game. The mind of Ah, the late 70s and early 80s. The boom years of the video game industry. And my game system was the Magnavox Odyssey 2. Sleek, stylish, futuristic, and totally underappreciated. Let's change that. I'll dig through the Odyssey 2 library, introduce you to each game, offer a few of my own expanded memories of playing them back in the day, and we'll see if those games hold up today. I'm Earl Green, and this is Select Game. Welcome back. It's time for episode three of Select Game, the logbook.com's Odyssey 2 podcast. I'm Earl Green, and this time around we are going to delve into some single-player games, which also happen to be the first games that we actually shelled out money for, that my family shelled out money for. I mean, we, yeah, right, I was maybe all of eight years old at the time. If you've been listening for a while, then you already know this part, but I'll recap for those just joining Select Game for the first time around here. Sometime in 1980 or so, we did a trade, my family, my parents specifically, did a trade with my uncle, who lived in Oklahoma, to uh, trade something of value from my dad's collection for which, by the way, was not a video game collection. It was a collection of other things. Trading something of my dad's for a shiny, new, and virtually unused Odyssey 2 video game console. This was the first home video game that had come into our house since Pong Sports 4. And so we're talking about quite a technological leap. We didn't have any of the middle steps, any of the the middle odysseys, which we'll cover at another time, or anything like Coleco Telstar. The games that we got with the Odyssey 2 were the the pack-in game that everyone got with the Odyssey 2, namely Speedway, Spinout, Cryptologic. Plus, we also got a couple of sports games that my uncle had bought, baseball and computer golf, both of which were ridiculously fun, and I covered those in episode two of Select Game. Now, one thing I neglected to mention, I think I neglected to mention it, I may not have. The early sports titles were mostly the work of programmer Sam Overton, who was working out of the original Odyssey video game group that Magnavox started, and it it really wasn't that much of a group. It was maybe two or three guys and kind of a you know kind of a revolving door effect there was not a large staff working on product for the Odyssey 2 Magnavox really didn't know what to do with the Odyssey 2 they were still very tentatively feeling out you know this entire product range trying to figure out if it was something they really wanted anything to do with 
Sam Overton programmed those early sports titles, and they were ridiculously fun. But Sam did not stay with Magnavox's Odyssey 2 software group, and basically uh, all of their programmers departed, went to more lucrative opportunities. And Magnavox seriously considered in you know 19 very early very early on in the in the Odyssey 2's lifespan they seriously considered just giving up on it because their programmers had bailed on them enter Mr. Ed Averett Ed Averett was Magnavox's point of contact with Intel Intel provided the central processing unit of the Odyssey 2 the mighty Intel 8048 chip which was a bit underpowered, a bit underwhelming as far as processing capability, but it was fast, and that's really what you need for a real-time application, a simple real-time application, such as a video game, and video games were expected to stay simple, more so than possibly any other console that had a lifespan of more than five years. The Odyssey 2 library has a fairly homogenous look to it. The the graphics in the games don't vary a whole lot because there is a fixed character set built into the 8048 and built into the graphics chip on the Odyssey 2. And so you really don't have a lot of variation in graphics. Anything really specialized that happened later on in the console's lifespan was very nearly a miracle because you had to fight to coax customized characters and sprites out of the Odyssey 2's graphics chip even more than the Atari 2600 programmers had to fight to get more graphics out of that which eventually they did and the the 2600 programmers especially once you had that group defect to form Activision and then you had another group follow them out the door to form Imagic and they started doing things that left Atari's first party titles in the dust. The Odyssey 2 graphics chip necessitated use or abuse in some cases of a fixed character set and so it was really kind of rare to see something you know, truly unique later on in the console's lifespan, such as, say, Casey Munchkin. Ed Averett was Magnavox's point of contact with Intel, and Intel was Ed's employer at the time, but eventually an arrangement was worked out where Ed Averett would code games for the Odyssey 2. And in fact, the vast majority of the Odyssey 2 library, when I say vast majority, I am saying probably something in the area of 70% of the available Odyssey 2 library from the 1970s and 80s springs from the mind of Ed Averett. He originally started out doing some fairly simple edutainment titles, which were expected of a console that had a full keyboard. But he later turned out to be a fantastic Odyssey 2 programmer, giving the machine some of its most distinctive games, the games for which it is best remembered. The games we'll be talking about today are a couple of Ed Averett's products. And we'll be talking about Ed quite a bit 
as this podcast progresses. Before we go much further, I want to thank everyone for their feedback and encouragement as Select Game progresses. I'm glad everyone's enjoying it. We interrupt this podcast to bring you the following special announcement. In the news. For lack of a better place to put it, I'm dropping in this piece of news before we continue with the rest of the podcast. This is a very late addition to the podcast, but I thought it was worth mentioning. PackratVG.com, Packrat Video Games, which is one of the kind of hot spots of Odyssey 2 homebrew activity, has announced that by the end of April... Let me double-check this. Yes, they are saying that by the end of April, they will have a new Odyssey 2 homebrew out. Shooting Gallery and Minefield, complete with extended graphics for owners of the video pack G7400 Plus, which was basically the the released European equivalent of the Odyssey 3. I expect the you know dozen or so people who have Odyssey 3 prototypes would probably be able to see the extended graphics as well. Anyway, Shooting Gallery and Minefield, a two-game Odyssey 2 cartridge, will be coming out by the end of April. Keep your eyes peeled on Packrat Video Games' website, packratvg.com, for further release information. We now resume your regularly scheduled podcast. The two games I'll be covering in this episode of Select Game Whereas I've already mentioned, the first games, the first Odyssey 2 cartridges that my family went to the store and consciously shelled out money for, having already acquired the console somewhat unconventionally without shelling out money for it. The sports games that we talked about in Episode 2 were quite a bit of fun, but... My mother knew. She knew. She Basically, she knew me better than I knew myself. She knew what would, uh, what would tickle my fancy. And so both games that we are dealing with today are basically science fiction or space-based games. We're talking about Alien Invaders Plus, the Odyssey 2 Library's answer to Space Invaders, and UFO, which is arguably the Odyssey 2 library's answer to asteroids. Although I like UFO so much better. We'll talk about that more when I'm actually playing it. The context for, you know, the sudden purchase of two space-based games instead of, say, a space game and a sports game or a space game and an educational title of some sort was that I was obsessed with almost anything to do with space, whether it was fictional or factual back in the day. If you've ever spent any time at all listening to my daily mini-podcast called The Escape Pod, you already know it deals with the history of space exploration and space technology and space science, and it handles that alongside the history of science fiction to provide sort of a fun context and contrast for you know for both ends of the equation and indeed uh, the main menu of my website is set up that way as well in sort of a today in history format which I keep adding stuff to all the time because history marches on 
may also delve into the past and find more stuff to talk about there. Suffice to say, from an early age, I have been obsessed with what's going on up there in the night sky. Now, it would be something less than the truth for me to tell you that this fascination with space did not start with a certain movie by George Lucas. However, my mother had a unique knack as I was growing up for picking up on what I was interested in and encouraging me to follow that path in some sort of educational manner. In fact, the getting the Odyssey 2 was just such a deal because she knew I was fascinated with computers, she knew I was fascinated with video games, and here my uncle had this computerized video game that had its own keyboard and therefore almost certainly there were educational software titles for this machine. And I think that played a large part in the Odyssey 2 ending up in our house. As far as my fascination with space and the immediate wake of Star Wars went, I think with I think it was within a year of Star Wars coming out that Random House Books published a hardback book for kids called the Star Wars Question and Answer Book about space. Now, I am not ashamed to tell you, I still totally have that book. And when I say I totally have that book, I mean I'm looking across the room at my bookshelf and I see it right now. Because it is not something that I have ever filed away in a box somewhere. I love that book. I really think there's room for someone to do an updated version of it now that Star Wars is coming back with a vengeance in a form that appeals to all ages and not just to George Lucas's accountants. The only, the only downside to getting interested in space in the mid to late 1970s was that we were out of the business of sending astronauts up there. The American space program, the American manned space program, was grounded. Apollo had stopped flying in 1975 with the Apollo-Soyuz mission, which was the first docking mission between American and Russian spacecraft. After that, it was all over until, you know, if or when the space shuttle finally flew. So you're talking about from 1975 to 1981, a very large drought of manned spaceflight. Now, one thing that the Star Wars question and answer book about space was really good about pointing out was that there were robotic missions that were going further than manned missions could because robots don't need to eat. But if you looked at the robotic missions, then the late 70s were a heyday. You know, they were an absolute hot spot of activity. You had the Viking launches, the first landers on Mars. You had the Voyager probes, which, you know, we didn't know at the time. You know, we had just fired off the first human-built starship. You had a Pioneer probe going to Venus. You had Pioneer 11 that was still zooming towards Saturn. And, of course, in the background of all this... You had the space shuttle test flights where they dropped it off the back of a 747 over the airstrip at a dry lake bed at Edwards Air Force Base in California. And the shuttle was going to go down to the uh, 
to that dry lake bed, either by gliding or by plummeting, and they covered it on live TV, and of course... Houston is going for Seth, have a great flight. They're cleared to separate. Launch ready. There they go. They have separation. There's two clear. Anyway, got a GPC light, lost the sink on two, pushing over. Got a big X on computer number two. Roger, stand by and halt on GPC number two. Go for mode 203. Roger. Doors open and they're all down, coming down. Look down here. 50 feet. 40 feet. 30. 20. 15. 10. Holding 10. 220, about 5 feet. 4 feet. Getting some drops. 4 feet. 3 feet. 2 feet. A very successful first flight for the Space Shuttle Enterprise. There you have it, you know, as history records it, the, the shuttle made it down to the ground just fine. But that was really the only break, those test flights, which all took place at the end, you, you know, in the summer of 1977 to the end of 1977. That was really the only gap in that long drought of, ast of American astronauts going to space in the late 70s. And... In the background of all this, NASA was really talking up the space shuttle like it was the game changer. We were going to build space cities and giant microwave power satellites. It would change the world. And of course, as we know, it wound up being a delivery truck to low Earth orbit. But if you were a kid at that time, that was a fantastic time to be a kid, wasn't it? Because we had no idea that the shuttle had this constraint that would forever keep it close to home and you know the budgetary constraints imposed on NASA would keep any of these dreams of large-scale space stations and power satellites from ever being realized if you were a kid at that time and didn't know any of that stuff I imagine it would have to be kind of like being a kid in you know sort of the atomic space age the 50s where it just seemed like you know the entire future was laid out before you and I can't help but think that there was a lot of synchronicity between the fact that we had all just seen Star Wars and then here's NASA dropping off this aerodynamic fighter jet looking spaceship off the back of a jet plane to test it so yeah the late 70s what a great time to be a naive kid obsessed with space. And, you know, that may be a demographic that consists entirely of me over here. But I have a feeling it isn't. So there you go. That's my, you know, in shorthand, that is my obsession with space as it started. And it was in that context that my parents purchased Alien Invaders Plus and UFO. In Europe, Alien Invaders Plus was known as Space Monster. 
very descriptive. In Brazil, where the Odyssey 2 was simply known as the Odyssey, Alien Invaders Plus was given an even more prosaic name, Alien. Not to be confused with the movie of the same name. I have a feeling they wouldn't have gotten away with that title in the U.S. Or in Europe, for that matter. Now, since my Odyssey 2 shelf, which, uh, which by the way, I will try to take a picture of this soon for your amusement and edification because I've mentioned the shelf. You know, I am walking over to the shelf and I am playing a game off the shelf in past episodes of Select Game. I've had a couple of people saying, okay, let's see the shelf. You will, you will in due time. It is customary for me before I start playing to walk over to the shelf, open the games up and see if there's an Easter egg from the past because one thing that I uh, discovered going into the earliest gameplay segments when I was recording them was that I had taped index cards into the, the back of the box for each game where the index card would basically be underneath the cartridge and I recorded high scores that I have racked up in the past. And so, Alien Invaders Plus isn't a game with a, a really a variable score system. You either win 10 rounds or you lose 10 rounds. Whichever happens first determines whether you win or lose the game. So there's not much of a scoring system there. UFO, however, is one of the earliest Odyssey 2 games to actually accept a high score, allowing you to type in your initials or you know, whatever you want to squeeze into six characters at the bottom of the screen. And so it was on July the 3rd, 1982, oh so many years ago, that I apparently scored 300, I can't tell if this is 352 or 362 points on UFO. And prior to that, June 25th, 1982, I ran up a score of 337. Man, I was playing a lot of UFO back then. Well over a year after I had gotten the game, but you know what? That's just a testament to how awesome these two games are. So, I say it's time to cut the chatter. Let's play. Press 1. To play Alien Invaders Plus. The first thing you notice about Alien Invaders Plus, and here's the funny thing, is you can sit under the middle shield on this game forever and basically let it do an attract mode. Or you can sit and podcast while it is sitting there shooting at you, unable to penetrate that shield. Alien Invaders Plus is obviously the beginning, one of the one of the beginnings, one of the earliest points in the Odyssey 2 library's selection of what I call near-beer arcade titles. Obviously, they could not afford the licensing for something like Space Invaders, and they had to differentiate the game enough not to be sued. That's correct, Obi. What is different about this game is that the invaders, there's basically a single row of invaders. They're the standard Odyssey 2 human. They're all red. Each of them has a gun, which is yellow. Sort of the Odyssey 2 mushroom symbol. 
and each of them has a shield, which is a large green dot. Their shields are impenetrable and cannot be destroyed. So they have the advantage right there. They keep on advancing downward toward you and shooting at you. You have three black shields, the standard Odyssey 2 square, and you have a pyramid-shaped space cannon. I'm finally going to start firing back at them. You can take out the cannon, and then the humanoid is defenseless. Oh, they got me. So now I... My cannon has been blown up. In Space Invaders, that would be the end of you. That's, that's that life used up. In Alien Invaders Plus, you are now a little blue Odyssey 2 human running around at the bottom of the screen or hiding under one of the shields. You get under one of the shields and press your action button. Boom, that shield is gone, but you have a new cannon. Oh, I just lost another one. Oh, I'm down to my last shield. Now this is where the game gets interesting. When you sacrifice your last shield for your last cannon, which is... This is a really inventive way of doing more than one life in a game. I, I will say that at the outset. This is a really inventive way of doing that without doing the inexplicable, oh, you're back alive, but only for a couple more times thing that would always happen in the arcade. And, of course, as arcade ports became more prevalent in the Atari library, it would happen a lot more on the 2600 and other consoles. When you sacrifice your last shield for your last cannon, the mothership, which is this really neat, it's very unique to this game, it's a little crab with waving tentacles and an eye that opens and closes. Now, on the cover art for this game, which is, you know, just fantastic 70s nightmare sci-fi album art material, the cover art is this Lovecraftian thing, which is this multi-headed snake that has a giant maw, and on top of that, on top of that terminus where this giant maw is spitting spaceships out at you on the cover art, there is a domed city. I mean, every, just about every sci-fi trope of the 70s is there in one package. It's beautiful. I wish I had a poster of it. If the people who hold the rights to the work of that marketing agency who did all the Odyssey 2 box art really wanted to cash in, they would go find the original paintings or drawings on these and make t-shirts or posters or something. Oh man, that, that would be my whole house. My kids would have 1970s nightmares their whole lives. When you sacrifice this last shield, that flying crab tentacle thing comes screaming out of the sky at you to chase you across the bottom of the screen. Not only is its army shooting at you, it's shooting at you too. So here we go. And try to picture this if you can. Every time this would happen, my mother would howl with laughter. And she would scream, ah, it's the crab. I lost my last ship. And here's the funny thing. I'm doomed. Yeah, there I go. But even though you are doomed and you are running around at the bottom of the screen, you can evade the crab and its army for quite a while. You, you know, you can... You can avoid the alien snipers. Oh, I'm not doing so well in this game. Oh, I'm not doing so well. Continuing to not do very well at all. Crab time. Stop. Crab time. Oh, I blew it up. You can blow up the crab if you still have a cannon. I have no cannon now. 
I'm going to see how long I can evade it across the bottom of the screen. My mom used to do this for... She would keep this thing going for 10 minutes, trying to outrun the crab, and she would just laugh her ass off the whole time. Oh. Man, I suck at this. I am not in, I am not in the crab zone, people. Oh, blew it up, though. Oh! Goes my last cannon. There are ten rounds to the game. You win by eliminating the crab and its entire army ten times, or you lose by getting your ass kicked ten times, which is really looking like how this is going to play out tonight. Crab will occasionally shoot at you from the top of the screen, like the Space Invaders mothership, and you can shoot back and you can destroy it, you know, long before you lose your last shield and it becomes personal between you and Mr. Krabby Cakes. Oh, here we go! Well, I still have a cannon, so it seems reluctant to come after me. Now it has no reason to be reluctant. Come and get me. Oh, his sniper picked me off. Wuss. Anyway, that's Alien Invaders Plus. Let me see. The Let me check the back of the box here. Starring the Merciless Monstroth. Okay, that is the crab that scuttles across the top of the screen. That is the Lovecraftian cyberpunk bio-organic, you know, biomechanical nightmare that's on the front cover art. The Merciless Monstroth. Such a favorite in my house. And I'm sort of an average player on this. Let me check the back of the box. Let me let me check inside the cartridge slot to make sure I didn't leave a high score for myself to discover in the future. I did not. Well, really, y your score is either going to be 10, which means you win, or you're going to die. So... This is very this is a very binary game. One or zero, you win or you lose. Aliens. Every year at this time, the National Space Administration requires all aliens to register. Forms are available at your local post office. Those without forms must appear, however briefly, at the Bureau's Astral Offices on Nooker Street. Aliens, register now. UFO. No, no, UFO. All right. First thing you know about UFO, first thing you notice is that the score uh, looks a little bit different this time. It's not just a simple number. Zero. Okay, I scored seven points that round. Wow. My seven points now appears as the high score on the bottom left of the screen with six question marks. The current score appears in red on the lower right-hand corner of the screen. Joystick is just a little sticky. Gotta work on that. Other than that, UFO is obviously 
This is the Odyssey to Asteroids. Write down to the flying saucer that comes out of the corner of the screen at inconvenient times to destroy you. What is different about this game from Asteroids, and actually I, I've always liked UFO better than Asteroids, is that you have shields. You have a shield of flashing dots around your ship. One dot is bigger and brighter and more solid than the others. That is your weapon. That is the pointer for your weapon. That is the direction. If you push the action button, thusly, that is that lets you know which direction you're going to be shooting in. But, since you have shields, you can do what I'm doing for most of this game. You can ram them. Just run right into them. Now, here's the thing. Your shield dissipates very visibly. There's kind of a mini explosion after you ram a UFO. You then have no shields for about a second. If you die horribly like I just did, you just keep talking. Now, about the question marks at the bottom of the screen, these are where you can type your name. So I am going to type Big E. And I'm going to die again having accumulated only one point while I was typing the high score. Yeah, your next round while you... The time you use to type the high score, you, you better just write that game off. <laughs> you have only one life in UFO, as you do in most Odyssey games, and as you do on this side of the screen. Kind of sad. I've, I've always thought that was an interesting choice with the Odyssey 2. Uh, there were not very many games, almost no first-party games that had multiple lives. They would express it in interesting ways, sometimes, if they wanted to use the device, such as with Alien Invaders Plus, where you can, you know, rather than losing life, you have to sacrifice security, you have to sacrifice your shield to gain the next ship. So it's not really, it's not really another life. In Alien Invaders Plus, you get one guy per round, and that one guy is the same guy running from shield to shield, from ship to ship, until you lose that round, or until you emerge victorious. Oh, come on, sticky joystick. Oh! While your shield is down, if you ram something, or if something rams you, yeah, you're pretty much toast. I was just about to catch up with my own high score there. Which I should probably stop trying so hard to play, because it keeps me from talking. Which is sort of what you're tuning in to here. UFO is a really neat game. In some ways, it anticipates features that Atari would put into Asteroids Deluxe in the arcades, such as the shields. About... About a year later, I'm trying to remember if the copyright on this game is 1980 or 81. Asteroids Deluxe was 1980. Alright, since I'm dead, let me uh, take a look at the copyright on the box. You are in command of an Earth Federation robot-controlled battlecruiser. I, I, that's, that's kind of funny, because... Yeah, that makes it okay for you to die. The, the battlecruisers are robot-controlled. 
So don't worry, kids. If you're of a particularly sensitive nature, no one is dying here. These are robot-controlled. Well, that was kind of funny. Well, wouldn't they be robot spacecraft and be human-controlled? Maybe there is some dark dystopian science fiction short story just waiting to be told about this game that you have to read between the lines to catch the barest hint of. I do have an easter egg for you on this game. The legendary index card has been taped into the bottom of the box. On June 25th, 1982, I racked up 337 points. Well, that's really nothing to sneeze at in this game. I mean, you have a you have a four-digit score counter, but let me tell you, lasting that long, that's quite a feat. And then on July 3rd, 1982, just over a week away from my 10th birthday, I can't tell if this is 352 or 362. I am going to... I'm going to say that this is 352. Not bad, nine-year-old me. Not bad at all. And that's it for the third episode of Select Game. Alien Invaders Plus and UFO right there. Two games I cannot recommend highly enough. They are both different enough from their, their inspiration from the arcade world that they merit, they merit being played on their own. And... As you can tell, especially with Alien Invaders Plus, it didn't have to be baseball for my mom to enjoy playing it. it. You know, it became a family pastime, running from the space crab. Every family out there should run from the space crab at least once. I can't recommend it highly enough. In fact, I can tell you right now that Evan and I have already run from the space crab as father and son. Running from space crabs brings families together or something like that. Anyway, that's it for episode three of Select Game. I do have a special treat for you after the end credit music. Several years ago, Pack Rat Video Games, under its original owner, cranked out a DVD known simply as the Odyssey 2 DVD. I was very heavily involved in that because I restored the video of all of the commercials in some cases, the video was pretty far gone. I mean, it was the color was in terrible shape. The, the alignment, the vertical hold was in terrible shape. It was kind of like 7th generation VHS, and I had to bring it back from the brink enough that it was worth charging for on DVD. One of the things that I also did for that DVD project was the music loop on the main menu. As it turns out, I did several potential choices. You know, I, I offered Jared multiple choices on what he could use for the DVD menu, and he picked one that was short, sweet, and to the point, and not very specific. But one of them was a little track called UFO Monster Attack. Now, here's the funny thing. This song, if you can even call it that, gives you samples of the Odyssey 2 over... A, an instrumental music background that was created on another video game console, namely the PlayStation 1 running MTV Music Generator. And so, stick around after the end credits and you will get to hear the song UFO Monster Attack, a duet between the PlayStation 1 and the Odyssey 2. 
That's all the time we have for the Select Game Podcast. You can hear Select Game on iTunes, Stitcher, and ThrowbackNetwork.net. And you can also subscribe through the RSS feed. You'll find the podcast itself and occasional goodies associated with it at www.thelogbook.com slash selectgame. If you really dig Select Game, also check out the 365-day-a-year Escape Pod Geek History Podcast at thelogbook.com. And donations toward the site's upkeep are always gladly accepted at PayPal, or via my Amazon wish lists. You can also support the podcast by buying select game t-shirts and other goodies at redbubble.com. Look under user the logbook. Phosphor.fossil is a comprehensive timeline of the golden era of video games, including the Odyssey 2. can be downloaded at thelogbook.com, which is also where you can find the books I've written about Doctor Who, Warp 1 and Warp 2. Feel free to drop me a line at the Facebook page for thelogbook.com, via Twitter at logbookguy, or email me at earl at thelogbook.com. Select Game Expanded Memories of the Odyssey 2 is a production of thelogbook.com and was written and produced by Earl Green. Music performed by Kasatochi, available for free download at thelogbook.com. Ah! <laughs> <laughs>
still with me. Guess you figured out this file's a little bit longer than <laughs> a little bit longer than usual. I wanted to add a little note to the end of the podcast and this is completely optional. This is there's there's very little Odyssey 2 related at this point. I wanted to tack a little note on the end of this podcast about a new book that I have coming out very very soon. The book is called Fatherhood Fandom and Fading Out. And it is a compilation of personal favorite essays, zine articles, articles from other sources, blog entries, all of it compiled into a single book, which is something that I have been meaning to do for quite some time. And I had, you know, I kind of had it penciled in as at some point I will do this. Because, you know, I've had quite a few people who have read my blog say, you know, you should put some of this stuff together into a book, you know, for the, you know, the balance of humanity outside of the dozen people who actually read my blog. And, you know, it's not a bad idea. It's hardly an original idea. There's <laughs> there are plenty of self-published books out there that are derived from people's blogs. However, I decided early this year to ramp this one up on the schedule pretty quickly. I already have another book that I am going to be publishing later this year called Warp One, which is volume one of a guide to Star Trek in the same format as the two volumes of Vorp that I've already published. Vorp being a multi-volume guide to Doctor Who. The Vorp books and the Warp books are very much in the same format. You can kind of cross-reference them between each other. If you're a sci-fi fan, you know, please feel free to check those out. You know, buy a copy for yourself, buy many copies for your friends. However, I'm going to take a slightly different tack with Fatherhood, Fandom, and Fading Out. It is a book that concentrates largely on three things, on my being a dad, on my working in the media in the past, and on being a fan of various things ranging from science fiction to video games. One morsel that I can offer you is that for those of you Odyssey 2 listeners who really dig select game, there will be a piece in this book about an Odyssey 2 game. It's basically a design document for a homebrew game that I wish I had the chops to program, but don't. <laughs> I don't have the chops, and at this point, I've run out of time to do it. But for those of you who follow me mainly for my 
Odyssey 2 ramblings. There will be something Odyssey 2 related in the book. And there are quite a few other essays on everything ranging from science fiction, you know, how it's done right, how it's done wrong on TV, on fans taking stuff too seriously, and on the media end of things, there will be lots of war stories from the years that I worked in radio and TV. Some of them funny, some of them are stories of deadly serious First Amendment issues, if you can believe that. So not everything in the book is going to be a laugh riot. But some of it will be, and hopefully you'll like everything that's in there. That'll be coming out soon. It'll be on Amazon in print and in a first for my publishing projects, it'll be on Kindle. So keep an eye out for that. I will post an announcement on the site, including on the Select Game site. Uh, Those of you who have wondered, you know, how can I support this podcast? Man, this will be a great way to do it, and you won't walk away empty-handed. So keep an eye out for that. It's coming out fairly soon. The book, again, is called Fatherhood, Fandom, and Fading Out. And heaven help me, I might actually get another book cranked out before this year is over, which would be a first. So thanks for listening. Thanks, everyone, again for your feedback. I just wanted to uh, drop that little nugget of information in your ears. Kind of like a babblefish, but not as helpful. And we'll see you next month with another installment of Select Game. And this time we will be covering, ah, edutainment.